St. Peter's Church on 54th and Lex in New York City. This is 54th and Text. This week we're talking about manna from heaven, environmental stewardship, and church finances. It's more exciting than it sounds, I promise. For the past two weeks, we've looked at Exodus with a wide-angle lens. We've talked about historicity and sources, and about Exodus's use throughout history, especially before the Civil War. This week, we're going to narrow in on one story from Exodus, the story of the Israelites gathering manna from Exodus 16. A useful way for thinking about this story is through the lens of environmental stewardship. Let me explain. The highest rents in the country right now aren't in New York or San Francisco. They're in Williston, North Dakota. A one-bedroom apartment there will set you back about $2,000 a month. On the upside, you don't have to buy a metro card. Williston is at the center of an oil boom taking place across the state, and they literally can't get infrastructure built fast enough. So things like roads and housing, that's not there. So thousands of people move in from other states before they can build housing, and you get North Dakota housing at Upper East Side prices. So last spring I looked on a map of ELCA churches around Williston, and I found the one closest to town and sent the pastor an email just to see what ministry was like right now. And apparently no one had ever asked for his opinion before, because he sent me back an email that was about four pages long when I printed it out. One of the issues churches there have been facing is trying to figure out how to relate to this bubble that's going on. There are some churches that are thinking about selling land. Others are thinking about putting their investments into these oil companies that are there. And the money that they're talking about, it's not nothing. We're talking about tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Decisions about the church's call to environmental responsibility will inevitably turn into economic choices. Placing a greater emphasis on environmental stewardship will likely mean breaking from practices and programs that have been ingrained in the life of the congregation. For example, the installation of solar panels may save money in the long run, but it's going to cost a lot of money up front and might have an effect on things like staffing and programs. Churches are also affected by decisions that other people make in the local economy. This pastor that I spoke to said that their church's income went up exponentially, and they didn't even do anything different. It was just from being around this oil boom that was going on. For many churches with dwindling budgets, making sustainability a budget priority may seem like a luxury. As this pastor I talked to said, the boom and bust history of areas like North Dakota leads churches to just grab as much money as they can and get out before the bust comes. Any congregation that's faced with an environmental trade-off will have to reflect theologically and biblically on God's provision for their church. Exodus 16 provides a useful lens for talking about God's provision in the life of the church. With the euphoria of their freedom beginning to wear off in the desert, the Israelites complained to Moses and Aaron claiming that they had better lives in Egypt when they were sitting over the flesh pots, eating our fill of bread. Moses takes their complaint to God, who assures the Israelites that he has heard their complaint. So God promises to rain bread from heaven that the people can gather every day to sustain themselves. This bread comes in the form of manna, a kind of fine, flaky substance that will sustain the Israelites through their journey. But the manna comes with certain rules. The Israelites can only take as much as they need for one day, and they can't take any food on the Sabbath. 
Though the Manna story may seem far off from modern church life, it carries with it important lessons for how churches think about environmental concerns and their own sustainability as congregations. The story begins with the Israelites complaining to Moses in verse 3 that they were eating our fill of bread in Egypt. The nature of bread remains a major theme throughout the story here, appearing again in verse 8 when Moses assures the Israelites that they will have bread in the morning to satisfy. In verse 12, when God assures Moses that God has heard the complaints of the Israelites and promises that in the morning you shall be satisfied with bread. To be sure, bread has a physical sense. The Israelites need food. In Lamentations, the same word is used to describe a political tree made with Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread for people to survive. But bread also carries a deeper sense, one of spiritual fulfillment. In Proverbs 13.25, one is satisfied not only with food, but also with God's righteousness. The verse plays off the difference between the soul of the righteous and the stomach of the wicked. God's mercies are a kind of quote-unquote soul food that truly satisfies. Similarly, in Isaiah 55, 2 and 3, bread is used to describe not only being satisfied with food, but with the love of God's covenant with David. In a similar way, Exodus here ties satisfaction together with the covenant, since God uses the manna to test whether the Israelites will live according to God's instruction or not. Put simply, to have bread is not only to have enough food or not to starve. It is to be spiritually filled by God's daily mercies that flow out of the covenant. Another major theme is taken up in verse 4, when God tells Moses that the Israelites will only gather enough for that day. The phrase for that day is reminiscent of what's used in Exodus 5 when describing the daily assignments given to the Israelites by the Egyptians. Ironically, according to Exodus, the Israelites' primary task in Egypt was building storage cities for food. Just as when the Israelites were in Egypt, they will have a daily task but this task will no longer be building cities for food to be hoarded and stored away, but a daily task of receiving God's mercies. 1 Kings also uses this phrase to describe a prayer that God will continue to maintain the cause of his people Israel, as each day provides. Again, the emphasis lies on God as the provider whose mercies are given day by day. This day-by-day measure of God's mercies cuts both ways for the Israelites. The Israelites will always have enough food to eat and enough to be spiritually filled, but the Israelites will never be able to control or stockpile these blessings. When the Israelites try to take more than they need in verse 18, the surplus disappears. The Israelites have no choice but to return to the harvest every day, to go out again and receive God's blessings. Finally, the theme of the Sabbath is taken up in verses 23 and 24 in which the Israelites are commanded to gather twice their normal amount of manna on the sixth day and refrain from harvesting on the Sabbath. The theme of the Sabbath is important for two reasons here. First, it's important because it's a day of rest. This is made explicit in verse 23, which affirms that the seventh day is a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to God. The verse is a forerunner of the commandment to obey the Sabbath, laid out more fully in Exodus 20. The importance of Sabbath rest for both God and humanity is a constant theme throughout the Hebrew scriptures. But the Sabbath extends not only to humanity, but to all of creation, a theme developed most fully in Leviticus. God, speaking in Leviticus 25, proclaims that there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land every seventh year. This functions as a kind of jubilee year. 
Leviticus 26 affirms that the land will enjoy her Sabbaths if the Israelites are removed as a punishment for not obeying God's commands. The extension of Sabbath to the land is more than a word of advice about farming, though such counsel certainly had a part to play. It is also a claim that the land has the right to rest on its own accord. Humanity and the land are both invited to rest because they are both part of the same creation. All of creation is invited, in the case of humanity even mandated, to partake in this rest. Second, the Sabbath is also important because it forces the Israelites to trust in God's promises. By not going out to harvest on the Sabbath, the Israelites have no choice but to trust in God's promises that they will have enough. The Sabbath is not only about having rest from the harvest, but also concerned with anticipating the renewal of God's new mercies. The Israelites are invited to lean into the future, depending on God's promised sustenance for their journey. The ending of the story comes in verse 35. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. Pastors and lay leaders must remind their congregations that just as God's mercies brought the Israelites through the wilderness, God will guide them through their anxieties and worries. It is, as Dennis Olson notes, the responsibility of the leader to encourage trust and hope in the God of the Exodus. Surely this leadership includes the airing of anxieties, laments, and grievances about the congregation's fears. Yet the congregation cannot depend on anything else for its sustenance but the goodness of God. There may be a temptation to cash out or get ahead while the bubble is still inflating, but there will be a day when the last oil well goes dry and the money from the fund runs out. And indeed, that's just what we've seen these past few months. Anything that can be saved or stored away can also run out. Only God's mercies continue to renew us day by day. It may be frightening for the congregation to live into a future that is not guaranteed or immediately visible, but it is in this invisible reality that the mercies of God are revealed. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Our theme music is Opportunity Walks by Kevin McLeod, used under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. We'll see you next week.